Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. This podcast was sponsored by the Ernst and Gertrude Tico Charitable Foundation. The Chronicles of Narnia have sold more than 100 million copies in 47 languages. The Lord of the Rings series has sold 150 million copies in 38 languages. The authors, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, were combat veterans of World War I. Great historians and statesmen have written that World War I left mankind in an abyss of desolation, and the idea of a lost generation emerging out of this war is a very popular one. But that might only be part of the story. For some, like Lewis and Tolkien, the war deepened faith and helped them develop an understanding of a difficult world. To discuss their wartime service and the influence of World War I on their writing, we are joined today by Dr. Joseph Leconte, author of the book, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Welcome, sir. Terrific to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about Lewis and Tolkien, but first, you spend some time in the book discussing the myth of progress, an idea that was very popular in the years leading up to World War I. Can you explain what this is and what impact the war had on it? Yes, Amanda, and it's important to kind of uh, talk about this a bit because understanding what this myth of progress was helps us to understand the great disillusionment that occurred in the aftermath of the First World War. So what's happening? It's hard to pinpoint an exact moment in time when this myth really took hold, this idea of progress really took hold. But certainly Charles Darwin and then Herbert Spencer, who popularized Darwin, the idea of a social evolution, that not just that um, the world is uh, evolving in a certain direction, but the idea of inevitable progress. Think about what happens in the tail end of the 19th and then the early part of the 20th century. We're in the midst of an industrial revolution, technological revolution, all kinds of inventions are coming online from the tractor to the automobile to the airplane, Einstein's theory of relativity, I think around 1905. So it's the idea that not only are we improving technologically uh, and scientifically, our knowledge is increasing, but the idea that human nature itself is improving is evolving, is reaching into new vistas of of perfection, of human perfection. Things are getting better every way, uh, every day. That idea, I think, has just taken hold. Uh, Not only the European mind, but the American mind, but the Western mind just believes in virtually inevitable progress, human progress, moral progress, spiritual progress. And then, bam, you get the trenches of the First World War you get this uh, rushing to stalemate, you get the uh, industrialized slaughter on a scale that we've never seen. And, and so then the myth of progress is, well, what does it mean? What could it possibly mean? There's a line here from, from C.S. Lewis, uh, who uh, comes of age really during this uh, fascination with human progress and the myth being at a high point, a real apex point, especially being in Great Britain, which is at the apex of its power at the turn of the 20th century, right? Here's what Lewis says. I grew up believing in this myth, and I have felt, I still feel, its almost perfect grandeur. It is one of the most moving and satisfying world dramas which has ever been imagined. It is so appealing to believe that we're on this inevitable road to progress. But then the First World War seems to just give a body blow 
to that concept? A lot of scholars point to Christianity and they say that it fails during the First World War, that it fails to explain the desolation and the tragedy. It fails to comfort people. What are your insights on this? It's a huge question, uh, Amanda, really a huge question. And there are a couple of ways to get at this. One of the reasons I think that people became somewhat disenchanted with religion, with Christianity in the aftermath of the war, was because many ministers across denominations, across national boundaries, turned the war, this conflict, into a holy crusade. In fact, there was a book that came out, I think in the 1930s, A Preacher's Present Arms by Ray Abrams. And he's chronicling, I think he overdoes it a bit, but he's chronicling the way in which various priests, ministers, clerics, they turn this war into what you might almost consider the, the last religious war that the Europeans fought. We thought the last religious war was the you know, Treaty of Westphalia, 1648. But you could argue that the way in which the ministers were talking about this conflict, vilifying and demonizing the adversary, it took on the sense of a holy crusade. So the challenge then was, once you've given the war your kind of blessing, you've, you've blessed it from heaven, you say that God is on your side, and then you have this incredible devastation, uh, close to 10 million soldiers killed, millions more wounded, the physical devastation of Europe, and all for what? And it's been blessed by the ministers. Well, now you've got a credibility problem, don't you? The churches now seem to have a credibility problem in a major way. They've given the war its blessing. They've claimed we're on the edge of Armageddon. And once the war is done, the enemy will be defeated and a whole new season of, of blessing uh, will be ushered in as a result of the war. And of course, that doesn't happen. Just the opposite. National economies are ruined. Well, now you've got a credibility problem with, with, with religion, I think, in so many ways, in the minds of so many people. So that's a huge problem, I think, for especially the European churches, which, which are so attached uh, to the politics uh, and to nationalism. The United States is a different kind of problem that way, but the Europeans have it in, in a really acute sense because of the national churches. Very interesting. Well, tell us about C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien's lives before World War I. Yeah, you know, this is a, a, an era that we have hardly any memory of, and it's worth thinking about. What was it like to grow up as a young man or a young woman uh, in, in the tail end of the Victorian era? Tolkien is born in 1892. Lewis is born in 1898. And uh, they have the kind of education that we now uh, look at and we think, wow, that's what a privilege to be grounded, I think. What a privilege to be grounded in this classical tradition, a classical Christian tradition. So they're reading these great works, which is just part of their mental furniture. Homer, Virgil, Milton, Dante, they're reading amazing works of literature, and that helps to form their literary imagination. So Tolkien, as a young man, he goes to the uh, King Edward School in Birmingham, quality, kind of a preparatory school for the, for the college system. Uh, young men who want to get into Oxford or Cambridge, that would be a pretty good school to, to want to go to. Young Lewis has uh, a difficult time of it because both men lose their parents. They lose uh, the, their mothers, and then Tolkien uh, loses his father when he's very young. T Tolkien will be orphaned, and he'll have the benefit of a, of a very sympathetic and learned Catholic priest who will mentor him and take him under his wing and help him uh, in his studies. 
Lewis, his father is alive, his mother has died, he'll be sent to boarding schools, which was not unusual for young boys, be sent away to boarding schools, now disconnected from their families. And those boarding school experiences, for the most part, were pretty unhappy times for C.S. Lewis. He more and more will, you could argue, withdraws into that literary world. But he will then come under the influence, not of a, of a Catholic priest like, uh, like Tolkien, he will come under the influence of a pretty hardcore atheist, William Kirkpatrick uh, in Great Malvern. P- Kirkpatrick had been the tutor or the mentor also to Lewis's older brother. Now Lewis has the benefit of this scholar, this man who teaches him to think, who just introduces him to the concept of ruthless logic, questioning every assumption, but also introducing Lewis to these great classical works. And if there's any person, and Lewis says this, if there's any person who gave him that gift, that ability to think and to reason with a kind of ruthless clarity, it's Kirkpatrick. And and this is jumping ahead, but the amazing thing then is that those tools of reason and rationality will help lead Lewis out of atheism and into Christianity. That's another part of the story. But they had these incredibly rich, I think, challenging, but rich experiences in, in, the, in, the, in their educational uh, uh, experience, particularly the men who come into their lives to guide them. Now walk us through their wartime experiences. Tolkien's older, and he's the first one to be uh, recruited into this war effort as a second lieutenant. He's with the Lancaster Fusiliers. He's a second lieutenant. He'll, he'll uh, go in as a signals officer. So he's the guy who is responsible for hundreds of men, r- uh, really, uh, serving under him. He's responsible for making sure that communication is is happening between the men on the front line and the generals, you know, off off the front line uh, back in the villas. It's really important for him to communicate those orders coming back and forth. So literally, the lives of these men in some ways are in his hands, his capacity to to get communication from from the uh, the generals to the front line and then back again. So. Tolkien will uh, survive the conflict, of course. Uh, he goes in in, 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 uh, in the summer of 1916. But here's what's crucial. He enters that conflict just weeks before the Battle of the Somme there in France. The Battle of the Somme to this day is still Britain's, as you know, the single bloodiest, most lethal day in British military history. And that's a lot of military history, Amanda, if you think about it, when you think about Great Britain. Um, they lost over 19,000 soldiers were killed on the opening day, many of them in the opening moments. And again, uh, for what? They really accomplished almost nothing militarily. But Tolkien is part of of the Somme offensive. He's not there on the first day, but he's there in the days and weeks afterwards. He will lose most of his closest friends in the conflict, some of them at the Battle of the Somme. Uh, He'll survive that battle, but he will contract trench fever common uh, bacterium that men would get, it takes him out of the war and saves his life, ultimately, at the end of the day, when you trace what happens uh, to the, uh, the Fusiliers, that, that, that combat uh, regiment that he's in. C.S. Lewis has a different experience, um, uh, in some ways, perhaps more horrifying than what Tolkien even experienced, in that Lewis comes in in 1917. He arrives on the front on his 19th birthday. Happy birthday, C.S. Lewis. And there he is. Neither of these men could have possibly been trained to expect to really uh, know what to expect uh, in the trenches, the bombardment. So here's Lewis 
thrown into it in 1917 and, in, and then into 1918. And if you think about 1918, the massive spring offensive that the Germans launch once uh, the Soviet Union is out of the war. Now they can d- devote their attention to France and start transporting all their troops, thousands and thousands of them from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. Well, C.S. Lewis is caught up in that spring of fr- offensive. And a shell goes off, a mortar shell goes off, probably from, from, the, from the British side, probably friendly fire. It's still unclear. But that mortar shell, it, it obliterates his sergeant, his beloved sergeant, Harry Ayers. Lewis is injured in three places from the shrapnel. It knocks him to the ground. He thinks he's dying. He survives. But also, like Tolkien, he loses uh, his, some of his closest friends in that conflict. Uh, and then both these men in, in sick beds. Uh, reflecting on what's just happened and the great loss they've experienced. Were both men eager to join the fighting? Neither of them were eager. They they rose to the call of duty. Think about Tolkien goes in in 1916. So you've already had two years of carnage. You've already had two years of stalemate. So that initial enthusiasm, it really has worn off, hasn't it? But probably by about the first year of the fighting, it's really worn off. And by 1916, it's pretty clear, second lieutenants like Tolkien and like Lewis, they are dying at a rapid rate on the front. And so the expectation is they're not even going to make it. When Tolkien says goodbye to his wife, Edith, you know, they marry just before he goes off to fight. When he says goodbye to Edith, he says in a letter, saying goodbye to, 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 to my wife, it was like a death. It was like a death. He didn't think he was coming back. And Lewis was also not eager at all to go to fight, especially by 1917. It was the sense that this great interruption of the plans that these young men had for their lives. They wanted to be writers. They wanted to be poets. They wanted to be academics at Oxford. And the war just interrupts all of that in this terrible way. And it makes their, their, their future so uncertain. Just like so many young people, especially today, they feel that the pandemic that we've been going through with the coronavirus has been such an interruption of their young lives. This is precisely the same kind of feeling that these that these young men had in 1916 and 1917. And it's remarkable that they survived their war experiences. It is remarkable, yes. When did they start writing the great epics that we love so much? <laughs> it's a terrific question. I'm still I'm still exploring it. I think probably the biographers still debate this a bit, but from from Tolkien's uh, own letters, his own admission, he's writing pieces of this epic mythology, the the the, uh, the fall of Gondolin. He's even s- scrawling on on pages while he's in the trenches, while he's in those dugouts. He's finding time. There's something about being a writer of, of, of imaginative fiction. And I'm not one of those people. I'm more of the you know, historian trying to tell the facts as I find them in our, in our age of falsehood. But, but uh, they're writing fiction. And as writers, you just can't keep it out of them. So Tolkien is literally beginning to lay out the foundations for his epic mythology while he's in the trenches. For C.S. Lewis, it's a little more challenging to pinpoint some of this. I think Lewis. Uh, now remember, he's an he's an atheist. He goes into the uh, I- into the trenches in France a- a- as a young atheist. He is an atheist in a foxhole. He comes out as an atheist. So he's not he's not writing about Narnia uh, and that great Christian story while he's in the trenches. He does say, though, uh, I think it's pretty clear that he's drawing on those experiences, though, when he begins to 
map out the story of uh, Narnia and uh, and the Chronicles. Uh, and he's drawing on some of those war experiences, and we can certainly get into that. I actually think that as I've begun to explore their lives with more care, not only the First World War, I think, is crucial here, Amanda, to understanding their literary imagination, but then the onset of the Second World War is also going to be crucial. I think we'll probably get into it, how it then triggers those memories and creates a great sense of urgency uh, on the lives of both these men as they're in Great Britain, and Great Britain is hanging by a thread, its own survival, of course, from 1939 right through 1941 especially, right? Right. Now, Tolkien and Lewis both love the natural world, and World War I is a war that devastates natural landscapes. Um, how did this factor, you think, into their writing, and what other parts of their war experiences yeah. eventually find their way into the stories? Yeah, it's, it is the question to ask, and I'm still unpacking it. And we need, we actually, I think we need more scholarly work on this. It's one of the reasons I just took a stab at it with my little book. And it's just really the beginning of a conversation. John Garth has written the definitive book about Tolkien and his World War I experience. Uh, And he's done that with real care and and unpacked it. The physical devastation of of Europe is something we Americans don't quite appreciate because, you know, we came in, we came in late, as the Brits like to say, we showed up late for the war, we suffered the least, and we came out the strongest. We didn't experience any physical physical devastation that that the Europeans did. Both Tolkien and Lewis really did love England. They loved the green of England. They loved the landscape, the meadows and the fields. They both grew up in these, you know, uh, very rural places. Sarehole was the little town where Tolkien has his fondest memories, and and really says that he based the the, the Shire, the Hobbits of the Shire. He based it on this little town, Sarehole, outside of Birmingham. Lewis, in growing up in Northern Ireland, and then falling in love with the English countryside. So the the physical earth itself, they believe, was such a great gift to mankind. And we had a deep connection to nature, human beings having this great connection to nature. So when you we've all seen the not only the photographs, but the of course the film footage as well, the way in which the, the First World War is not just an assault on human beings, it's an assault on the earth, an assault on the earth, the physical devastation. So I think when you look at different scenes, for example, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, think about the 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 march to Mordor and passing through the dead marshes that Sam and Frodo have to do, the description of that landscape, nothing alive, absolutely barren. Well, that is France. That's the Somme in 1916 into 1917. Uh, That's one uh, uh, way to think about it. And also think about how Tolkien is in a sense going to have his revenge on this, the last march of the Ents. Mm-hmm. The tree-like creatures in the Lord of the Rings who participate in the war against Sauron. That, I think, is absolutely deliberate. That's Tolkien saying, no, nature is going to have its revenge on what man has done to nature. And so we'll bring in the, la- the last march of the Ents. And I think Lewis is doing something similar in the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember, it's the animals. All of these talking animals working in collaboration, so connected to the woods of Narnia the physical landscape, and they are participating in the great war now against the white witch. Nature, the best of nature, is part of this cosmic struggle. And I think that's very deliberate for Lewis and Tolkien. No man could have passed through uh, France, the trenches and the landscapes, 
and not been so moved, emotionally moved by the devastation. There's no way you're going to forget those memories you're going to carry with them throughout life. And both of, both of them did. I think those are some of the most powerful parts of their books when they do talk about nature revolting against evil or nature kind of coming back to cleanse what mankind yes. has done. On a lighter note, in your book, you also say that Tolkien saw the everyday average British soldier in the hobbits that he created. Yes, Tolkien literally says that. Remember, these are men coming from the middle class in Great Britain, and now they're interacting with men from different classes. It's a very class-driven society. Tolkien, a second lieutenant, would have had a, a servant, someone to take care of his, his, his physical needs, uh, a guy known as a bat, a, a Batman, the Batman who served the, the, the second lieutenants. Well, Tolkien had one of those Batman. Lewis would have had one as well. And what they saw, not just among their the, the Batman, but the ordinary English soldier doing his duty. And there was a resilience to the British army that was kind of remarkable. They, they never broke. They never collapsed. The French army comes pretty close to doing that. The Russians do. The Italians do. Uh, but the British army doesn't. And what Tolkien and Lewis both saw was this, uh, this courage, this resilience, this perseverance under fire. And, and Tolkien literally says, my Sam Gamgee is indeed based on the English soldier, the Batman that I fought with in the, in, in the Great War. And I think uh, Lewis has a very, very similar observation. Think about the, uh, the characters who are the real heroes in the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, of course, you have the children. You have the, 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 the children of Narnia, but you also have a mouse named Reapy Cheap. Why, do, why is a mouse named Reapy Cheap suddenly, you know, imbued with this kind of courage and, uh, uh, and uh, absolute bravado? Well, there's something about that. There's something about the small English soldier just going into it, giving his all for the cause. I think there's part of that as well. That's where this is part of their achievement, I think, Amanda. What these men are doing, which almost no one is doing in the 1930s and 40s, is they are reinventing that mythic hero, chivalry, courage, valor, sacrifice for a noble cause. They are, they are taking that idea of the mythic hero and they are reinventing him for the modern mind. And that is not the mood. That is not the literary mood in the 1930s and 40s at all. That's a remarkable thing that they're doing. Yes, it is. Now, throughout the book, you talk about something you call the problem of evil. This problem of evil cannot necessarily be explained in natural terms, but it's something that is a tangible force in the world. Can you explain this a bit more and then talk us through how Tolkien and Lewis deal with this problem of evil? Yeah. Now, think about what these guys have in the 1930s and 40s. They've come out of the First World War. They've seen that devastation. They've seen the, mer the merciless assault on on human beings and on nature itself. Now they're watching the rise of these totalitarian powers. They have a ringside seat to the, to the rise of communism, fascism, eugenics. We may get into that discussion as well. In a way that Americans don't quite have that ringside seat. They're just, they're closer to it. And this is part of what the First World War sets loose. The communist movement exists in the 19th century, but it's, it's right after the First World War where it takes off. Fascism, founded by Mussolini, the fascist movement in 1919 in Italy, one of the victors in the war. Again, the war just sets loose these ideologies because of the, in large part, because of the disillusionment that people are feeling after the First World War. It looks like democratic capitalism has failed. Christianity has failed. 
the, the values of the West, the liberal values of the West seem to have failed. What's going to replace it? All of these monstrous ideologies, totalitarianism, communism, fascism. So the will to power, that's what these men have a ringside seat to. They're watching these ideologies take hold in Europe. And I think it's, it's vivid on their minds now as they're setting, setting about writing their great epic works. Remember, Tolkien, he writes The Hobbit first draft in 1933. That's the same year that Hitler comes to power. It's published in 1937. His publisher wants a sequel, <laughs> as, as, as publishers do when they have a popular book on their hands, they want a sequel. Tolkien's not inclined. He says, I have nothing more to say about Hobbits. But the publisher convinces him, no, take another crack at it. Well, he does in 1937, 1938. Well, guess what's happening in 1938? The Munich Pact. This is the agreement that the Western democracies make with Hitler. Uh, they, they, they basically barter a portion of Czechoslovakia for a promise of peace. And then, of course, the First World War begins in 1939. Tolkien is writing The Lord of the Rings right through the Second World War. And he admits in one of his letters, yes, this new story about hobbits it's taken on a darker tone, and, and the present crisis has something to do with it, he says, he admits. For Lewis, the first book that he publishes as, a, as now as a Christian believer, a, a work of fiction, it's Out of the Silent Planet in 1938, again, uh, and then this, this part of the Space Trilogy, and that trilogy really is about the will to power, the, the, the misuse of science and technology to dominate other people. Think about what, what Tolkien uses as the great symbol of evil uh, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings, the ring, right? The ring of power. Some people believe, or at least believe then that, and, and still today, that Tolkien was really using the ring as kind of a metaphor for atomic power, you know, the atomic bomb, because by the time the Lord of the Rings is published in the 1950s, we've got the atomic bomb, we're on the way to the hydrogen bomb. And Tolkien sets them straight. He says, well, of course, my story is not about atomic power, but about power and the willingness to use it to dominate others. Power exerted to dominate others. He just tells us that's what the story is about. So when they look at the rise of these ideologies, evil embodied in these political theologies, if you will, communism and fascism, really evil incarnate in these political philosophies, Tolkien and Lewis have a ringside seat to that. Great Britain, the country that they love, where they're living, is in a fight for its life against these ideologies. It can't help but influence their writing now. They've seen the wickedness of the First World War, and now they're living through a different kind of evil. And I think it absolutely enters into their imagination. And I think, again, Amanda, the thing that's so impressive to me about them is they do not become cynical about the ideals and the institutions of the West, of Western civilization, of their classical Christian inheritance. Not only do they not become cynical, they want to defend those ideals in the face of these totalitarian ideologies. That's interesting because they both, and you point this out in the book, they reject militarism. Yes. They also reject pacifism Yes, in favor of this chivalric ethic, this idea that there are heroes. A lot of people say that and criticize this and say it's very backward looking. And if you look at the other writers at the time, this is not the direction they're going in. But you argue that it's not backward looking, that it's actually very forward looking. Yes. Explain. 
Yeah, that's a that's a terrific question. And this is part of I think part of their achievement is to avoid these emotional philosophical extremes, pacifism on the one hand, militarism on the other. They navigate between these two, don't they? Uh, Lewis said, and I think one of his essays, this is he's writing in 1940, Britain's at war. And he says, we now know that a terrified and angry pacifism is one of the roads that leads to war. Great Britain was totally unprepared for the conflict with Germany, the rise of, of Nazi Germany. Winston Churchill is trying to sound the alarm, but Britain is in an isolationist pacifist mood, just like the United States uh, is as well. And that's a problem because the totalitarian powers, they will pounce on weakness. There's a line here from, uh, uh, from Lewis as he's trying to defend this return to something like this, the, that, um, that value of, of ship, the ideal of chivalry uh, in, in the Middle Ages. And we think of that and we think that's pretty backward. <laughs> that's pretty medieval. And we use that in a very negative and pejorative way. But Lewis, he's very realistic about it. He knows how, they, how the phrase could be abused and how people fail to live up to the ideal. But the ideal is, yes, fierceness in war but also gentleness and compassion when that's required. And the noble knight, uh, that heroic ideal, the noble knight would embody those qualities, fierceness in battle, but also gentleness and compassion. And what Lewis says is, this is not escapism. He says it offers the only possible escape from a world divided between wolves who do not understand and sheep who cannot defend the things which make life desirable. What's he talking about? I think he's talking about the need for a kind of martial courage, a kind of Christian realism in the face of evil, because to adopt the posture of pacifism will only allow evil to triumph, but to adopt the posture of militarism, you'll become your enemy. At the end of the day, you'll become your enemy. And that, that, middle, that middle path for Tolkien and Lewis is it's it's really the, the just war, the just cause. That's what they're arguing for, it seems to me, in, in both of their epic works, The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lord of the Rings, the just cause. Mm. Do you think that The Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit, or The Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, you call them epic tales of sorrows and triumphs of war. Do they happen without the experience, though, of World War I? It's a terrific question. You know, with with Tolkien, this is just a my own hunch right now. With Tolkien, he said that his his taste for fantasy, he says this in one of his letters, his taste for fantasy, his epic fantasy, it was quickened, he says, by war. And he means the First World War. Something about that dynamic, the intensity, the camaraderie under fire, friendship under fire. It's not, it's not a, uh, uh, an accident that the fellowship of the ring is what we're so drawn to, the fellowship, the camaraderie, which he experienced as a soldier under fire in the First World War. I'm not sure he would have written uh, his epic work without the experience of the First World War. But also, I want to add, Amanda, I don't think it would have taken on the, the, ser- the moral seriousness and maturity that it did without the Second World War. I think both wars were essential for Tolkien. For Lewis, it's a little bit, it's a little tougher to answer. He had the image of a fawn, he says, a fawn standing in the snow. You know, the the image here for for the Chronicles of Narnia. He had that when he was a young boy, long before he went off to war. 
But then he, I, I read just the other day in one of his essays, I was reminded of this. He said, by the time I was 40, I thought I should do something with that image and turn it into a story. And then you, you do some math and you think, what, what year was, when Lewis was 40, when was that? Well, that was about 1938, 39. Something about the onset of the Second World War is now triggering a sense of urgency to do something with that image. And it turns into this great epic conflict, the fight for Narnia against the White Witch, the forces of evil. We can say this, though. We have to add this, though, Amanda, uh, about the relationship between these two men. They become friends in, uh, in 1926 at Oxford. Tolkien is instrumental to Lewis becoming a Christian believer, helps lead him out of his agnosticism. Lewis, though, is also Tolkien's greatest advocate for his, quote unquote, his mad hobby, his hobbitry, the stuff that he's writing that Tolkien thinks no one's really going to be interested in publishing this. Lewis is his greatest fan. And and Tolkien says explicitly, were it not for C.S. Lewis, I never would have brought the Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. So I think we can say if there's no Tolkien in Lewis's life, it's not clear there would have been a Christian conversion or when that would have happened for C.S. Lewis. But without C.S. Lewis, we probably wouldn't have had the Lord of the Rings. So there is this amazing friendship that makes possible the creation of their great epic works. If I had to summarize kind of what we've been talking about uh, in three words, it's this, war, friendship, and imagination. Because it's the, it's the first world war that makes possible their amazing friendship. And it's their friendship that makes possible the creation of their great epic work. So it's war, friendship, and imagination. That's great. A lot of scholars will say that Dante, the poet in particular, in the Divine Comedy, he reaches peace with the world through a vision of hell and heaven. Hmm. And I've always kind of thought that Lewis and Tolkien do the same thing through World War One, but now I think I have a sense that they do that through their experiences of World War One and their knowledge of what the world is going to go through in this World War Two period. Yes, yes. I mean, um, I don't think any man who passed through the, the fires of that war, the First World War, could have come out somehow unscathed. Right? The the um, the walking wounded. The um, the impact, uh, the psychological impact of the war on so many men was so devastating. They managed not to become emotionally debilitated by it. And I think part of the way, especially for Tolkien, part of the way that happened was through their writing, through their literature. They're, they're so sober about the tragedy of the human condition, aren't they? They mm-hmm. understand what men can do at their worst and what, what is inside us, the, the, the darkness inside us, not only the world outside of us, but the darkness inside of us. They become intimately acquainted with that darkness, having passed through the fires of the First World War. And that obviously influences their writing. Think about it. None of the heroes uh, in, their, in their works really are immune to the temptation to go down a dark path. They're all susceptible to the temptation. That's part of the, the drama of the Lord of the Rings. Who, who can carry this ring, right? Can Frodo really get the job done? At the end of the day, he can't quite get the job done, does he? He needs help from the outside. It's a similar thing with, with Lewis, isn't it? At the end of the day, the children in Narnia, they can't save themselves. They have to be saved by Aslan. They're not strong enough to resist this evil, this darkness. So there's something about, I think, that experience of the First World War that they knew at an intimate level that I'm sure they spoke about in their meetings together, in their many, many meetings together, that kind of, yes, you know, you too. 
that 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 sense of we've passed through something that few men can understand. Uh, if they haven't passed through it, they really can't. So that is something that brings them together, no question about it. And I think it it absolutely gives their writing a kind of anchor, a moral anchor, and a moral seriousness. I think it's one of the reasons they can't be triumphalist about war in their writings, even when their heroes emerge triumphant. It's as if they they can't believe they've just survived. And they're and they're fearful right to the end about all of it and trembling with fear and trembling they go into these conflicts, right? That's realism. That's the realism of the First World War, I think, written, just in, seared into their minds and conscience. It's almost like a total rejection of the myth of progress. Your heroes are the weakest. Your heroes are the yes. ones that actually can't succeed yes. by themselves and almost don't succeed. Yes. Um, yes. Think about the, those chilling words from Frodo uh, there at the cracks of Mount Doom, where he says, uh, I I do not co- I will not do the thing I came to do. The ring is mine, right? And he puts the ring back on his finger. And then, of course, it's it's Gollum who who bites the ring off his finger and then falls in the cracks of doom. And Tolkien calls that a U catastrophe. It's a word he makes up. The word catastrophe with the letters E U before it. The U catastrophe, which is the undoing of a catastrophe, a sudden miraculous grace. That's how Tolkien uh, talks about it. And Lewis, it's very much the same thing, of course, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the children being being rescued at the end and uh, and this and the stable becoming this portal into Aslan's country. But they have to be rescued as well, because the darkness is just it's too powerful for us in our own strength to overcome. What a different uh, vision of heroism, isn't it, Amanda, from our modern day heroes, our superheroes who just, you know, they win the day through firepower, through their superpowers, through their good looks or whatever it is, they win the day. Tolkien's heroes and Lewis's heroes, they don't win the day uh, like that, do they? And that's sobering to think about. We're coming up on the end of our interview here, but you are coming out with a documentary film based on your research. What can you share with us about that project? Uh, Well, we are, we're working on a five-part documentary film series. Episode one is basically done. We're going to have our first film screening event uh, over at Grove City College in September. Uh, You can look at the trailer for the film on hobbitwardrobe.com, hobbitwardrobe.com, about a four and a half minute trailer. This has been a wonderful experience to work on. Uh, I've got the other scripts written, basically written. We're going to go back to the UK uh, and probably other European locations and finish filming the rest of the series. We've got some grant money to do that. And the plan is get episode one out, at least in film screenings, get the rest of the uh, uh, film work done, the production work done, and then go to Amazon or Netflix or one of the other distributors and say, okay, we've got episode one. Uh, We've got this other stuff shot. Now let's make a deal. Let's make a deal for finishing the production and getting this thing shown. So we're still raising money, still uh, happy to get help from our friends out there who are hobbits, closet hobbits, or or, uh, reapy cheap uh, mouse fans out there to help us out. Uh, But I'm incredibly excited about this because we get to talk to amazing uh, historians and biographers. We get to go on location where Tolkien and Lewis uh, spent their lives, their academic lives, their personal lives, their homes, all the haunts of Oxford, the English countryside where they did their amazing walks. Uh, And so I'm learning more and more about their lives that has just been so enriching because it is such an encouraging story out of great struggle, suffering and loss came this 
moral beauty. What else can we call it? Moral beauty. The stories that they wrote embody these traits of virtue, of sacrifice, friendship, heroism. And they reintroduced and reinforced those ideals in such a profound, creative, powerful way, like no other authors of the 20th century. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Lacanti, for joining us today. That was a pretty fascinating discussion. My pleasure, Amanda. Great to be with you. Hope to come back. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.